Hi, this is Vanessa Van Olstein, and welcome to an interview episode of Art, I Swear, with my special interviewee today, Nestor Enrique Zaragoitia. How's it going, Nestor? Oh, good, good. You got my name right. I love it. I try to say it right. I've always got that, like, Texas Hicks slant whenever I say anything, like, Spanish. So... <laughs> You're probably one of the most interesting people I've ever met, and I want to start this out. I usually say, if I interview somebody, I know how I know them, and you were my professor when I started out at uh, junior college. It's now a full-blown college called Collin College in the DFW area. Uh, you kind of have an interesting start to life. Do you want to tell everybody about where you're from? Oh, sure. I was born in Havana, Cuba, and... Uh... It was, um, well, it was the 1950s. That tells you how old I am. And um, it was a pretty nice life until we started to have a pretty intense revolution. So my father worked for the American embassy. So when Fidel Castro uh, became a dictator and was communist, uh, we had not, no, no choice but to leave. Um, we left with the American ambassador. Uh, when they broke relationships. And my father took us straight to New York City, <clears throat> Manhattan. And uh, that's where I grew up, and I grew up in the West Village. And what was interesting about the West Village in this period was that um, all of these famous people lived there, uh, very famous people uh, that you, that people would um, be familiar with. <clears throat> and as far as the arts was concerned, I wasn't into... Um, visual arts in that time, even though I did artwork, um, but I wasn't taking it as a uh, career. But I grew up uh, as, as, um, as an example. Uh, I grew up with the children of these famous people, and one of them was Lisa de Kooning, who was the, the daughter of Willem de Kooning, the famous abstract expressionist. And I used to go to their houses. I, uh, I knew him. Uh, very quiet fellow. <laughs> I hung out while he was painting, which was very, very interesting. Uh, the, uh, I said to him, uh, uh, very ballsy as me, I said to him, like, uh, oh, I'm also an artist. And so it was a very funny situation. This was the first time I met him, and he gave me a canvas stretcher. <laughs> oh, wow. I guess, I guess he was trying to tell me, well, go to it. Here you go, kid. <laughs> You're gonna need this. So what? What did you? What did you do with William de Kooning's canvas stretcher? Well, I still have it. Nice. And, and I have used it all throughout my life uh, to stretch canvas. Sometimes I've used it as a hammer, but nice. Um, but um, but um, yeah, that's one of my fond memories, probably out of uh, all the famous people that I um, met. Um, I actually, which is interesting, I actually sat with him a lot of the times uh, when he was just contemplating the paintings, you know, and he wouldn't speak. Uh, and then I would say things, and uh, here and there he would make comments, and I guess all that stuff stuck in the back of my mind. In this period, what had happened was that I was very interested in music, and I, I had made a naive agreement with myself that if music didn't work out, I would go into art. <laughs> and uh, if you, but what happened was that music, what? I was going to say, because if you don't become a rock star, you're going to become a music, or 
uh, yeah, a, like artist, you know, yeah. It's like, well, what a workout. <laughs> well, and the thing that happened was that uh, music did work out. <laughs> so then I did music for about 25 years. Uh, I did a lot of tours, probably some of the more, um, I guess, important tours that I did. I opened up for U2 uh, the first time they came to the United States. Uh, I did that tour, which was quite uh, wonderful as a memory, um, and a whole bunch of other uh, famous people. And I also recorded a lot of albums. I was on a fair amount of albums of people that uh, uh, that uh, were famous. <clears throat> so I had a whole career of that. And uh, what made me leave it, um, fortunately, was that uh, I got a condition in my hands where I couldn't play guitar any longer. And I really wasn't interested in, even though I played other instruments, and I also produced, uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I always wanted to be a performer. And so, and so that um, made me think about going back to school and, and get a degree. So for, for people who are curious, what was the name of like a band that you were in that like opened for YouTube or what? Or U2. It's U2, not YouTube. The band that opened up for it was um, this girl um, who was uh, Regina Richards. And uh, the band was Regina Richards and Red Hot. Okay, I have heard of and them. Regina, yeah, and Regina Richards actually became more famous than that because she had a number 10 hit at the time that Madonna uh, was getting famous. And everybody thought that she sounded like Madonna, mm. uh, so they mistook it. And the record actually was a good record, um, the, the single, which is called Baby Love, um, which became a huge uh, club hit. Now, as far as the Madonna situation is, is I, I knew Madonna. I actually did her demos with my, my other, my partner. I was the one that co-produced it. Um, uh, the original demo that got her signed to a record company. I knew her that whole period where she started. Uh, we knew each other very well, and so did Regina. So it was uh, an interesting time. Yeah, I you had so you did have a studio. Where was it located? It was located on Eighth Avenue and uh, let's see, from Thirty Eighth Street. And um, so, so that was like a couple of blocks away from infamous Forty Second Street, and this is. Uh, well, when I had the studio, it was 1980, and this is when New York was at its worst, at its lowest. So, um, so there was a lot of crime, which we didn't pay attention to. <laughs> uh, I never got. I, I never. Got, well, actually, I, I, somebody tried to mug me once. I got into a, um, the elevator where my studio was, and the guy pulled a knife on me. <laughs> and being a New Yorker, I just looked at him and I said, "You got to be kidding me, right?" <laughs> and he just—he put his knife away. <laughs> like, it's not even a gun. What the? <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, it's, New York was funny in that period. I mean, everybody has stories like that, like you know, just crazy, mm -hmm. crazy things, and homeless people like crazy, and it was very dirty, and stuff like that. Uh, just a rough period for New York. 
Yeah, I remember I went in 2008 for the Whitney Biennial, and I was like, this place is, like, cleaner than Houston. I, I don't... <laughs> it's not the same city anymore. No, and, like, 42nd Street was uh, absolutely... Anybody has seen, uh, I'm sure they have, Taxi Driver, the Martin Scorsese uh, movie, and that's what it was like. There are scenes of uh, 42nd Street with all these porn uh, movies that... Uh, movie theaters that in the in the 1930s, you know, 20s and 30s were like the classiest of uh, what we call it, uh, theater, uh, Broadway theater, and uh, and movie theaters, uh, where all these big stars used to go, and then it, they all turned into porno uh, palaces, such as they used to call them. And so it was an incredibly rough uh, street to go by. Uh, there was a lot of drugs uh, selling in the streets, but surprisingly enough, I mean, people like myself would walk by there and not think twice about it and were never bothered, so so the reputation in a way was, uh, was worse than what it really was, which is typical of these kind of things. Well, I... But then what happened is when Giuliani <laughs> came in as mayor... Then he basically turned, uh, and basically has become uh, a Disneyland because Disney bought bought out a lot of those, um, uh, not only theaters but buildings. And so right now, if you go there, it's just Disneyland. It has nothing to do with true New York. Yeah, and I think that any city in America, if you go to the parts that are kind of sketch, it's going to be similar. Like those parts of Dallas, you probably don't want to hang out in during the night or even during the day. <laughs> there, that was definitely true yeah. in Houston. And it's, is it New York City is like any city on steroids, I think. <laughs> so I remember when I knew you and I was like 19 and 20 and I've always been kind of a smart ass. And I, I think that's safe to say, um, you know, you're this like, sweet little Cuban guy and I made some like offhand like snide comment about like nobody knows that his past Nestor was a punk rock guitarist and like you started laughing and it was creepy and then later you're like I actually was a punk rock guitarist I used to go to CBGB's oh yeah <laughs> oh well uh, in this period you know the funny thing was that in that that whole period you know it's it was the 70s mainly until the, and that's really when when punk, the real punk was around. And, um, you know, the first punk period and proto period, um, the whole area was uh, called the Bowery, which I think it still is, uh, if I remember. But it's, uh, you just can't recognize them, uh, you know, the, the buildings or, but the, the architecture is uh, totally uh, that high end. Yeah. Um, but in that period, it wasn't that. In that period, that whole area was bummed. Upstairs from the, uh, from CBGB um, was a derelict hotel, a very bad derelict hotel, and um, and just in general, the area was uh, dangerous for one. And uh, just went down. But the funny thing about it was that that whole area was cheap rent. <laughs> so uh, 
anybody that was into the club scene, anybody that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, was a musician, basically lived down there because they didn't have to spend that much money. Um, I could barely pay my rent, and it was $80. Oh, my God. A month. $80 a month. Yeah, but, you know, it was a wonderful... um, uh, It it was... They became wonderful neighborhoods um, where... You knew artists and musicians, uh, architects, people like that, dancers, uh, theater uh, <clears throat> actors, uh, and things like that, which was incredibly uh, one incestuous. But in the other way, you know, everybody uh, fed off of each other. Uh, uh, there was a real uh, connection there. Uh, very, very um, artistic renaissance kind of thing. Uh, very powerful. Yeah, I think you were the most sophisticated person I'd ever met at that point in my life. I was like 19, 18. Um, and I remember like for a while, I, you tell me all these crazy stories like, oh yeah, I knew Blondie and oh, I saw police the first time they came to America before they hit it big. And I didn't believe you. And then at one point you brought this book that was like a photo thing of the punk rock generation and you like flip it open and there's Blondie in your lap. And I'm like, oh God, he's telling me the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these things are really, um, uh, it's hard to say to people, and um, and they'll just think that you're full of it. You know, you're just creating it. But it's true. Um, you know, I was very, very fortunate. Very fortunate, and it really had to do with the beginnings in the West Village. I just, uh, since there were so many, artists and artist children and that kind of exposure um once again it was a neighborhood you know and it was a very interactive neighborhood so you met a lot of people you had a lot of chances uh possibilities and uh it just came it flowed very easily you know you just i would fall into conditions where i would be playing music playing guitar with all kinds of different people, you know, all kinds of famous people. So, and I would play anything. I would play jazz. I would play anything at all, and especially when, when I was trying to make money. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I was this uh, genius guy, you know, and Max was, Max was Kansas City. Um, <clears throat> wonderful scene. Yeah. You know, you know, people like that, you know, all the people that were around that time. Um, I went to school with uh, Patty Darvinville, who, who's uh, actually a famous actress, uh, who's still around, and we still talk, actually, and we're still very good, very good friends, um, socially. Uh, and but she was, you know, an Andy Warhol darling, and uh, songs were written about her by famous people. All this, and you know, these are the people, you know, that we went to school together, you know, so mm-hmm. it was cool. Yeah, it's interesting how in history there's sometimes these little uh, bubbles of time where people just come together, and I feel like the genius of people gets to thrive. Um, like, I feel like that kind of they kind of made that happen, like with the Surrealists and Dottists. They just all kind of chose to come together and create this, like, strong period where they create artwork, and definitely New York, that, like, Bowery area and such, back then did that. And I feel like we've wanted to go back to that like there's this dream that new york city is still secretly like that and i don't know do you think it still is 
Uh, well, what's happened is uh, I don't think New York City or Manhattan is. Uh, I think there might be pockets here and there, but everything that I know about, I go there pretty often. Um, I have family and stuff like that. But everything that I've noticed is that um, people are coming from outside mm. to New York City looking for these things. And so the original kind of uh, uh, condition uh, just uh, don't really exist because these people are uh, in another level. And the people I know have been pushed out of Manhattan. So you have a situation where actually in the 90s, um, starting in the 90s and so, where people were pushed to Brooklyn. Now Brooklyn, <laughs> the same thing has happened uh, because it's such a desirable, you know, area. So and the rents have gone up, and the artists that moved there have been forced out. And so there's different little areas. Uh, in Manhattan, what happened was the downtown got moved to Chelsea, you know. Um, so and then all these. Galleries, especially galleries and art centers, and all these things moved down there and just totally because these are factory buildings. Um, and when the factories left, then the artists took over, which is very difficult. Yeah, that's uh, I think the word for that yeah, gentrification just, is what happened. Right, it's, a, it's just a formula, and it's a it's a wonderful formula that ends up happening naturally. But then once these galleries and stuff take over, then the, they get priced right out of the area. So they went from downtown Soho to Chelsea and then Brooklyn, and now they're getting spread out all over the place. Uh, they're now going to Long Island City. Uh, that's kind of like where a lot of people that I know have been pushed to. Uh, and now they're, they're looking at other places, you know, in, in, law, in um, Queens. So and it's going to happen again, you know. But New York has basically come to be that, where people just can't live. Uh, the $80 a month rent don't exist. Yeah. Yeah, I... I didn't... Yeah. No, I was going to say, I, I think some of what uh, did it into was uh, Sex in the City. Because I, I feel like that kind of gave people an unrealistic idea of what living in New York is like, and they go there to try to recreate this, like, rich, fabulous utopia of shoes and wealthy partying that is and isn't there. I, I, I could be wrong. No, I think that you're right. And, you know, and certainly there were a whole bunch of other things influential in that way, too. Uh, once that really took off, a lot of movies, and, you know, just... Books, um, but and you know, so people also, you know, what it did for the city was that uh, since the city was uh, the reputation was so rough, and so people were just people that didn't know New York City just thought that everybody was being murdered every five five minutes, you know. Yeah. Um, which, as I said, it wasn't true, but once you had you know, fixing the city and. Uh, Picturing New York as this wonderful place, you know, like where you could live and you could get these wonderful jobs, you know, people started coming in and so and replacing. And, and it's always it's the same formula, you know. Um, I, I always tell people, like, here in Buffalo where I am, I always tell them, you know, that uh, the formula is this, bring the artists into the area that's not desirable. And what ends up happening is that the rich people 
feel like one of the cities that's actually about to happen to on a big scale is Detroit. Right. And you, you kind of live across the, uh, it's Lake Superior, right, from Detroit? Right. Yeah, so it's, I know a uh, bunch I'm of... Up in the, um, oh, go ahead. Up in uh, Lake um, uh, Ontario. So. Okay. But and yeah. What, and what's happening here, actually, um, which is interesting, is that in the past two years, we've had uh, an explosion uh, of a comeback. And part of it is because uh, university, um, uh, State University of New York in Buffalo, uh, which is where I am, uh, opened up a multi-billion dollar uh, medical campus downtown Buffalo. And that's brought an incredible amount of young people, for one. Uh, here, the arts are very big, and actually uh, there's a very healthy uh, community of arts and music, theater. Uh, it's very surprising. It's kind of like a well-kept secret kind of thing. And then what they started developing was uh, the harbor, and that has just exploded. It's just taken off. And so now you're having all these companies wanting to invest here. And um, I used to be the uh, one of the directors for this, um, um, this gallery, this um, uh, ethnic gallery called El Museo. And um, we basically got ice out of the area. We haven't moved yet from the area, but it's not going to take long when you're going to have to leave our location um, because the same thing's happening now. So the area is being gentrified, um, and all of these old places that, uh, you know, survived on this low rent. Uh, situation, uh, I've lost it. So um, the typical formula exists everywhere. Mm -hmm. so. It's yeah, in Dallas, it's happening, and I have to think to get this right because there's Oak Cliff and Oak Lawn, and it's Oak Cliff uh, opened up the Bishop's Art District, right. which has been a major boon for that area, and it's getting to the point houses that used to be like worthless are now selling for considerably more, and it's just going up and up. Yeah, I, when I moved here, I moved here in uh, 2003. When I moved here and I started looking for a house, as I told you, I started looking for a house in, in uh, Buffalo, and um, the houses were going for $53,000. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Which I wish I would have talked about. Um, but instead, I decided to uh, go somewhere else. Uh, I bought a house for even cheaper than that, <clears throat> but um, not in the city. And now those houses, I, the, the house that I looked at is like a $300,000 house now. Uh, that's what it's going for. So um, it, 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 it does. I mean, these things change, you know. And the terrible thing about it is if you want the neighborhood, you know, to rise, uh, then it has to happen. That's the only way that that neighborhood is going to improve. You know, it's when money is being pumped in. So, um, so it, it's kind of like a catch twenty two, you know. So, one of my favorite stories about you is how you met your wife. Do you mind talking about that, or it's kind of like a punk rock punk rock love tale? Yeah, punk rock love tale, right? So, um, the thing is, is that, um, which is very interesting, uh, when CBGB, when Hilly, Chris 
what a blues rock uh, bar. And that basically, you know, it went the punk rock way. But um, but it, the, the first time, the very first time he had uh, a band play was a band that I was involved with. I didn't play in the band. I actually recorded them that first um, show in CBGBs. Um, I, I, I was I stayed very good friends with Hilly and his daughter, and, and until he passed away. As a matter of fact, and I saw him just before he passed away. Um, you know, whenever I went to New York City, <clears throat> but so so I knew him that far back, like when he first started, and uh, I actually still have the recording. Um, but uh, I, right after that, he started to book all of these bands. So um, I was there since the beginning in that sense. <clears throat> but um, so CBGB's when it exploded and you had the Ramones and you had uh, Talking Head and uh, Blondie and all these people that be, uh, eventually became megastars. Uh, my wife was uh, a waitress <laughs> at CBGB's, which was insane because it was such a... You know, it was punk. I mean, it was serious. I mean, and people did all kinds of things like throwing bottles and <laughs> things like that at bands. <laughs> it happened to me. Oh, no. <laughs> I got fought a, a couple, of, couple of times with Budweiser uh, <laughs> bottles. Um, but anyway, so, and it was rough. So everybody had to be tough, you know, because, and especially because a lot of the audiences weren't even from the area. They were usually from Long Island or... Queens uh, and Brooklyn, and so they didn't even fit. They didn't even understand what was going on. Uh, but they, you know, they had heard, you know, this place and uh, listened to this uh, new music. And so I met her there because I played CBGBs all the time. And um, uh, uh, which actually, <clears throat> FYI, uh, recently one of my friends um, rediscovered some some. Uh, films of when I was there, and he sent me some of the copies, and uh, pretty interesting. Um, but, um, so we met there, uh, and then she be, actually be, uh, started booking uh, bands there. So we knew each other that way. I Actually, she was married, and I knew her husband. <laughs> he was like a roadie. <laughs> nice. Uh, so we, actually, we actually weren't interested in each other, but then once she got um, divorced, I separated from my girlfriend, who was Regina, by the way. And um, oh, nice. So you, so you, so you were dating. And all of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, love bloomed, <laughs> and we got married. So. Yeah, and y'all been together how long now? Uh, thirty-three years. Yeah. And we just, and we decided to have a daughter uh, very late in life. So I have a twelve-year-old daughter right now. That's awesome. Yeah. She's big on ballet. So I'm very big, actually. She's on it, in it, uh, involved in it. So um, so we still have the arts in the family. <laughs> well, wasn't uh, her grandmother a ballerina? That's correct. My, yes. Uh, so it is, it's a family she tradition. She was a child ballerina, and then eventually she became a, a dancer on Broadway, um, some of the biggest Broadway hits, and 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 her, her father too, and um, then she became a director. Uh, wow! Interesting, interesting thing. It's just 
It's, it's a, it, and it's funny that how, how the whole thing is a circle, you know? Yeah, it's a it small world. People. Yeah. And it was uh, basically the same people uh, knew each other. Uh, everybody had houses in East Hampton because they bought them in the 50s for cheap. And now, you know, they lived there um, and knew everybody else. So very interesting. And I, hey, speaking of that, I have to tell you a story. Okay, so I was, um, it was one of the times, you know, punk era, and I just couldn't afford to rent, and I ended up in the streets. Yeah, a guy with a guitar in the streets. Yeah, that's... Uh, very strange. I'm surprised I never got robbed. Did you play on the subway? No, I never did that. <laughs> but this is um, uh, pretty much pre-subway uh, musicians' days. But um, but I was always walking around with a guitar. So actually, sometimes just because I had a guitar, I would uh, I would get asked to play <laughs> on stage, you know. And sometimes I didn't even know what the people were playing. But anyway, but the story goes that I was homeless, and Lisa De Kooning, um I saw her one day. We were having coffee, and she goes, "Well, you gotta stay in my house, man. You can't be in the street." So. <laughs> She had three dogs, Malamutes, uh, and um, in the apartment. And as I found out, that was the, the famous apartment where Jackson Pollock and everybody used to hang out in. And um, so I was staying there, and the room that she put me in had all of these paintings of his from his father that his uh, her father ha- had made. Um, so I actually was sleeping with all these recordings. Uh, you know, and I just, all I kept thinking about was that, uh, Jesus Christ, you know, when you go to a museum, they put white gloves on to handle these things, and here I am pushing them to the side so I can sleep there. <laughs> oh my gosh. The irony didn't escape me. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, I think I... And you don't have to tell this story if you don't want to, but I kind of want to, like, finish up your punk years with what I think is one of the stories that just blew my mind when I was young. Was it Iggy Pop that you had to stay with you when you were, when you had a recording studio, or? Correct. They were, um, uh, well, they were rehearsing there. Uh, He wasn't living with me, but they were rehearsing there for uh, their, um, uh, which one's, uh, what's it called? I think it was a... Well, I know that it was the record Zombie Birdhouse, but I think it was their second tour um, that where they were promoting that uh, record, and um, they were always there. I mean, they, you could have said they lived there for the, uh, the rehearsals because it was that uh, intense. He is very, um, he's very organized, very organized person, um, and knows exactly what he wants, but <laughs> he's kind of psychotic. And um, so all the time they were rehearsing, um, you know, his name is Jane, uh, uh, Jim Osterberg, James Osterberg. And so and he's incredibly smart, intelligent. So he would come in and he basically was Jim Osterberg, his real, you know, his real identity. And he would do things like uh, he was reading like intense books at the time and writing poetry and all this stuff. And... Um, uh, watch McGaugh, and uh, so we, you know, we talked about music. We talked about, uh, every, you know, everything. He's like one of my heroes, so it was insane to be sitting there with him, discussing all this stuff. 
And then it was the week, it was like two weeks before they were supposed to go off or a week and a half. And in came this guy named Iggy Pop. <laughs> because his character changes once he's ready to go on the road. And it was this nuts, crazy guy that threw things around. He broke things in my studio because he would get so worked up, you know. And as everybody knows, his, his stage uh, uh, act where he just smashes uh, microphones and he broke one of my windows. <laughs> All kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then he also would disappear. And uh, there's no surprise with people that, uh, uh, I don't want to get too into it, but that he, you know, he, he did drugs. <laughs> but he never did when he, when he was James Osterberg. It's only when he became Iggy Pop that uh, that, that was going on. So it's very, uh, very funny. Yeah, I, that's so amazing to me. Um <laughs> I don't even know what to say. So I'm going to sign off for this section of our interview. We'll follow up uh, next week with uh, Nestor's life as an artist. Um, this is Vanessa Van Alstein. Thank you for interviewing with us, Nestor Enrique Zaragoitia. And this has been Art Icewear. I would like to thank Joe hey, Giggs. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I would like to thank Joe Giggs for the intro and outro and the Iridial Pro. Uh, and the Conant Project for samples, and uh, Jillian Gomez, our producer.